Lord, help us to understand uh, these sayings of yours, these events that occurred, that they might open our hearts to hear your voice this morning and respond more fully to you. In your precious name, amen. Mark is a very crisp storyteller. He has a succinct way of conveying his message and each story has so much in it. He chooses his words very, very carefully. And here we have two stories that each speak on their own. They both say something that's very important and we're going to look at that. And I think they say something by virtue of the way they're set together. We might talk about that. You can help me try and understand something that I'm struggling to understand in this um, little passage. But the first thing is, let the main thing... No, the main thing is that the main thing should be the main thing. That's how that saying goes, isn't it? Yeah. So here we have the uh, teachers of the law, the scribes. Now, the scribes performed a very important role in the ancient Near East. They preserved the scriptures. They were the people that made the copies And, of course, with sacred text, you can't afford mistakes. I don't know if you ever did copying, writing off the board. They they probably don't do that at school anymore, but some of you might be of my generation where you used to, you know. And I was hopeless at it because my spelling was so terrible, I almost had to look up for every single letter and I made lots of mistakes. I would make it very bad scribe. The scribes had all sorts of systems to ensure that every single word was exactly right. Every single jot and tittle, as they said. Every marking on the page. They had number systems to count the letters and they could cross-check and ensure. And if you do some research in this area, you discover how amazingly accurate they were. Because they didn't have photocopy, photocopy machines It was all done by sight and by hand on papyrus or stone or whatever the material and they found differing manuscripts hundreds of years apart with the most minute of changes in the text which by all accounts, any account, is an extraordinary achievement, I would suggest. So they had a very, very important role and the sad part about that is they knew it. So uh, by virtue of their uh, attention to the text, they knew the text really, really well. If you had a question about the sacred text, who would you ask? Someone who knew the text really, really well. They were looking at it every day. They were poring over it and writing it and all this kind of stuff. So they became people who were the authority on the text. And um, they were given a whole lot of honour by virtue of the honour ascribed to the text. It's a sacred text. This is the way God speaks to us. You know the text? Oh, you must be good mates with God. We don't think quite like that, but it's that kind of uh, glory by association that very easily happens. But another thing that very easily happens is you can know the text and miss the message of the text. And we see this very, very often. In actual fact, in any piece of communication, whether you're talking to somebody or sending an email or a letter or a newspaper article or anything like that, there's always a temptation to apprehend that communication and make it say what you want it to say. So in a conversation, 
someone can be saying X and Y, but because of where you are at the moment, you're hearing A and B. And it might be in the facial expression or the tone of voice or your own predisposition on that particular day or moment, but you can end up hearing something very different to what the person was actually saying. We, we take hold of communication and we turn it into something very often. If you ever listen to Parliament, and I don't recommend it, it's not good for the soul, but if you listen to the way parliamentary debate goes on and somebody stands up and says, and the other person on the other side gets up and takes one bit of it and twists it around and makes a joke out of it, and we do that all the time because we hear from where we are and make the communication meaningful to us in the way we want it to be, essentially. We do it in conversations on Facebook threads. We do it everywhere. Rather than allowing a text to stand for what it is, we will often use it in a particular way. And with Scripture, rather than allowing the text to shine light on them or on us, they, like us, prefer to apprehend the text and make it useful in our agenda. And... uh, There's no shortage of examples of this. I don't know if you listen to some of the crazy news that's around uh, in church circles, but a few, back in the 80s I think it was, when AIDS became a thing, did you remember the Christian voice that came up and said, this is the judgment of God? You know, or the Ash Wednesday fires, this is the judgment of God. These sorts of pronouncements as if, I know what God's up to and I know the text so I can say what it is, da-da-da. This is a, uh, a misuse of the text. Here we have the text becoming a guarantor of status. So by virtue of knowing the text, these people were somebodies. It's a complete misuse of the text because the irony is if they really understood the message of the text that they were using to give themselves status, they would understand that the text says we all have the same status, that we all stand on the same ground. you feel the irony there? Using a text that says we're all the same to make yourself a little bit superior to everybody else? It's beautiful irony in a way. And Jesus says that these people will receive greater condemnation. So it's a serious business that's going on here. And uh, we might be prone to think that on the last day when Jesus returns, he's going to wag the finger at them more than at us or something like that. But I think there's uh, something even more profound and, and more present going on in this. The scribes were experts on the text, but not the meaning. And as a result this condemnation operates within themselves in the present, I think. The scribe needs outward signs of respect because he lacks an inner sense of who he is. When we know who we are, we don't need affirmation nearly so much from those outside of us. When we have no idea who we are, when we feel somewhere deep down inside that we are nobody, that's when we go after outward affirmation. 
So the fact that the scribes needed to prance around in long robes and get seats of honour and say long prayers for show is actually an indication of a condemnation that's already at work within them. Does that make sense to you? It's a tricky one, but I think it's really there. We see this very often in more subtle ways, that people need outer affirmation, identity, that kind of stuff, because the inner work isn't there. Um, There's a a rather funny cartoon going around the internet at the moment of a a waiter standing over a couple who are having their meal saying, is there a problem? I I didn't see you Instagram your meal. You know? (laughs) And this, I mean, uh, I I think it's a remarkable phenomenon that people sit down to a meal and they go, ha-ha, I'm going to take a photo of my meal so I can tell the world how fabulously I'm living and the, the fantastic things. Isn't it just good enough to enjoy it? I mean, if you need everybody else to know what's going on for you to have some sense of enjoyment, what, what's, what is that? What's going on there? And it's a serious question because I think we do frequently try to get our sense of identity from the responses of the people around us. And that's an indication of a a judgment that's going on inside ourselves that's at work. So that's, that's the first bit there. And then we come to the story of the widow's mite. And... This is a really interesting story just to look at the, the staging of it. So Jesus is sitting opposite the offering box where clearly the amounts of money that people are putting in are on show. Do you do that when you're putting money in the offering bag? It comes around and you go, <laughs> hello, I'm putting the 50 in today. You know. <laughs> Everyone see that? <laughs> I, just, no, I think you missed what I'm doing again. Um, <laughs> a great episode of Seinfeld where um, apparently if you tip this certain fast food place that, you know, that they like it sort of thing. So um, I think it was George, he's always tight with his money and he's talking to the guy and he throws a really big tip in just as he turns away and he goes, oh, I didn't see that. Oh, I better get the money out and do it again, you know, because it's about what other people see rather than actually doing the giving. Now, wealth is an interesting thing because it facilitates the capacity to give from our excess. And um, this, in a way, can quarantine us from actually giving. I liken it a little bit to raising children. Um, This might sound like an overstatement, but I often feel like I am pouring out my life to my children. Yeah, other parents are going, you betcha. <laughs> and we do, we, we pour out our life to our kids. And there's a sense in which they take that life and they start to live it and they become people and you know, they must increase and we must decrease. <laughs> if I had loads of money, I could outsource that, you know. I could get a nanny that could pour out his or her life to my kids and I could get on with my life. And the kind of giving of the kingdom is a kind of giving which is kind of like the giving that happens in parenting where you give yourself. And if you've got loads of money, you don't ever have to do that. You, you can, excuse me, you can, but you don't have to. And our innate survival instincts are really strong. 
And if we have the option not to pour out our life, we usually take it. Why not? And that's why it's so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom because they have so many options not to. And um, the poor widow here, no one's forcing her to give. She wants to give. She wants to give her last two copper coins. One of the most vulnerable people in all of Jewish society. She's a widow. She's got no man to earn for her or protect her or anything like that. And now she's got no stuff either and her last two copper coins. But she wants to do it. She wants to give herself. She wants to participate in the life and the community. She wants to make her contribution. And Jesus rightly sees that and goes, that is worth so much. But the most difficult problem is the way these two passages are laid next to each other because in the first passage we have the scribes and their authority and their pomp and their ceremony and their position and that they devour the houses of widows. And then you get a story about a widow whose house has been devoured. She's got nothing left. Now, I don't think that's an accident. And I think it raises a question with regard to the nature of culture and whether whether it is oppressive or life-giving. And there's no question that world culture is oppressive. You look at the debate that's going on about taxes at the moment, and I don't care where you stand on that debate and all the sorts of different ideas, but you watch. Those with power want more of it, and those who don't have power want more of it too, but they don't have the power to get it. And the debate over tax will illustrate that. And there will be some voices that say, oh no, we've got to make this fair, but I wonder. Just, just keep an eye on that. It's a world-known phenomena. Those with power want more of it and they have the power to get it. Those without power want more too, but they don't have the power to get it. That's the world's way. And that's a little bit what we see happening even in this scenario where the powerless are having all their stuff taken away and it's sanctioned by the religion. It's like the world culture has seeped into the faith culture. It's so easy for that to happen. And we think that we're so different in the church, but actually Jesus said that saying, be in the world, but not of it. So, you know, mix with everybody, but don't do it on the same terms that everybody does it. And so frequently the church does the exact opposite of what Jesus said. We are of the world, so just like everybody else, but we don't mix with them. We have our own little sub-world where we do it all in the church. You guys aren't. You guys, good. <laughs> but I've been to lots of other churches like that. But you know what I'm saying. You know, the, the culture of the world can infiltrate, can start to seep into the way we do things and we become much like everybody else. Kingdom culture realises the innate value of every person. We touched on this last week when we talked about the image of God in people And if you want to honour God, honour the image of God. It's in all people. That's where we express our honour and worship of God, in honouring people, every person. The world culture sections certain people off. 
There was a meme going around this week about um, Murdoch and I think it was The Age, a, a line about the burden of the um, disability support pension is now $17 billion a year or something, as if caring for people is a burden. And it's a way of saying those ones out there that aren't us, we have to carry them. Whenever we section people off like that, we start to deny part of our own humanity. Nobody's a burden if we love them. It's a joy, a care, something that we do. If they are us, caring for them is good for us, right? And I think it's world culture that says, let's divide, divide and conquer, divide and separate, push people away. Kingdom culture says, no, we are them, they are us. We are in this together. Let's work out how it can work best. So, you know, faith culture is not immune from this and I think these two stories together illustrate how subtle that is. The most vulnerable, giving all she's got and being devoured at the same time and we've got to look out for that kind of thing in our own circumstances around us. So, to sum up, kingdom culture... Power is for service. The scribes had a fantastic task, preserving the scriptures. Would that they'd done that, and that's what they'd done really well, and didn't use it for positions of power where they were positionally powerful rather than doing something that was powerfully good. Giving is a way of engaging, uh, not of a way of avoiding involvement because sometimes giving we give so that we don't have to get any further like we give cash so that we don't have to be involved real giving is getting involved it's getting into the thing and love means ensuring all have access to what they need so we need to be alert to the models that take root in our hearts the values that shape us because some of those values have within them the condemnation of emptiness, when it's about external stuff, when it's about what other people think, when it's about our prestige in the context of people's adulation or that kind of thing. Some values have within them the fullness of life where we give ourselves and we experience the fullness of that giving. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these two stories and uh, the things they say to us. I confess I'm still struggling to understand the fullness of this, but I can feel it within me that you're calling us to be those who understand the needs of those around us and uh, that your spirit leads us not to be at a distance, but to, to care and be close and be marked by that. But we confess that our innate uh, self-protection mechanisms are really strong and anything that we feel threatens to overwhelm us, we want to keep away from us. Help us to trust in the power of your love and to walk in that love to do the good that you're calling us to do. To the glory of your name we pray. Amen.